one of the great things watching the lived experience mm -hmm. network develop is seeing their role at the table mm -hmm. with decision makers and with professionals that they become decision makers, mm -hmm. co-decision makers mm -hmm. with the professionals. Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. Hi everyone, I'm Beck Edser, Child and Family Partnerships Coordinator, and in this two-part episode, we will be hearing a conversation that I had the pleasure of listening to between three people who were key in establishing a lived experience network. The group is comprised of 15 system advisors to the South Australian Government's Department of Human Services Early Intervention Research Directorate. While developing a case study for Emerging Minds Child and Family Partnership Toolkit, consultants Dana Shen and Mel Lambert, as well as the lived experience network coordinator Yasmin Sinclair, met with me to share the journey that they've been on with this project and some of the learnings that they've taken away from undertaking co-design work that's centred around children and families' lived experiences. At Emerging Minds, we're committed to ensuring that the voices of children and families with experiences of adversity and resilience are included in our work. I was interested in hearing from Dana, Mel and Yasmin how they had done this effectively with the Lived Experience Network and what were some of the key ingredients to this network's success. Dana and Mel kicked off the conversation by providing some context to why the Lived Experience Network was set up and how they were involved. A core piece of work that we had been involved in was the development and sort of a redesign and co-design of the Child and Family Support System. And... There were key system elements that the department wanted us to focus on, but also we knew and our partners knew that a core part of that was actually having the family voice actually being central to the whole project. And so we ensured along the way that families were heard in different kinds of ways. So first of all, we started off with um, families actually in one-to-one -one or group interviews with us. And over time in the stages of the project, as we became more connected and more known by families and were able to kind of encourage them to be part of what happened, they actually were involved in other parts of it as well. As Dana said, it was a gradual process of building trust with the families we were working with. And so after the initial interviews and conversations with the families, we decided to draw them into some of the broader stakeholder workshops in a very supported way and um, given their previous experience with child protection and um, with the system mm -hmm. they were nervous of that and so we really worked with them to work out what role were they comfortable to fulfill what supports did they need and so we equipped them with some tools to help them remember that they're there to help design the system not to have to go through their story again mm -hmm. not to have to retell their story which they were so used to doing with the system having to tell and retell their story so having to help them unlearn that and empowering and enabling them to be involved in professional stakeholder workshops which they did amazingly they designed their own role description they gave themselves a role title which was system advisor and that name is still used a little um, and that gave them real credibility in those workshops and it was really interesting Dana wasn't it watching the professionals think about their words think about how they were framing problems because these lived experience system advisors were in the workshops mm -hmm. so that was a really empowering thing for them and then uh, all those families who were part of those workshops 
um, continued mm -hmm. into the lived experience network. Mm -hmm. um, they then presented in the final workshop to showcase the whole co-design project, which was a, how many people? 300? Oh, yeah, plus everybody room. online. With the minister there, two ministers there, in fact, mm -hmm. and they showcased, they sat up on stage and, and shared their experiences. And I think it was such a powerful experience for them and for DHS that it seemed impossible almost to let that lived experience voice um, not continue to influence the system. Um, and so that's when we were approached by DHS to continue working with Yasmin, mm -hmm. who came into the department to lead the lived experience work um, and co-design a network to continue advising because they just saw the value of it, I think. Would mm -hmm. that be your impression? Absolutely. And, you know, I was looking back at the, the report that came out of this and, you know, it's the richness of... I mean, of course, all stakeholders matter in big systems work, absolutely. But actually having the voice of families and the way they speak about things, mm. they talk about it from pure experience. They talk about it as ordinary people speaking to, to all of us about what needs to change. And there's something so special uh, about that that it cuts through so many other things that can happen in a system of this type and it actually reaches people. So I think that that was, yeah, strongly um, influential mm. in why it was so important mm. to go to the next step. Mm. Dana's reflection here really resonated with me in thinking about how Emerging Minds lived experience partnerships really form the foundation of our work and ensure effective and impactful outcomes. The importance of building respectful partnerships that allow children and families to share with us their stories of strength hope and resilience, as well as their challenges, is absolutely key to reaching people. Next, we started to hear from Yasmin about when she came on board in her role as the Lived Experience Network Coordinator. She shared with us what some of the key considerations were at this point in time. I guess um, really we just needed to do a lot of the trust and relationship building as well as what you did in the co-design process. I think we needed to allow time for that to happen again and particularly building a relationship with me. And I think also because we weren't sure exactly what the lived experience network was going to be, it was about you know co-designing something together with that group of parents and carers and with DHS as well. So, um, so we spent a lot of that first year looking at what would the terms of reference be, workshopping ideas. Uh, the parents went out and interviewed family and friends and got ideas from them. And then, yeah, we came back with some meat to put on the bones of this terms of reference. Um, and it's been interesting, I guess, to review that over the last year as well um, and add to that and build on it. Mm. Mm. And my sense was that at every point, the families, we needed to really not just build trust with us, but build trust that the system mm. would actually listen to them. Yeah. I remember just feeling rightly so that they were calling us to account at every turn to go, well, will this really change? Well, what if we don't like that? What's going to happen? Mm -hmm. Is Where are the decisions being made? And just watching that building of their belief. And I have to say real credit to DHS as well, because it, there were a few points early on where towards the end of the co-design project, there were some design principles that were created by the families. And they were their words. And they were not bureaucratic speak. They were, they were direct. They were the words of families. And we were really strong and they were really strong that those words couldn't be changed. And the leadership in DHS did not want to change those words. But as happens in editing editions of reports, the words got changed somewhere in the edits. 
and I could understand why and it was not intentional at all. But when we spoke up on behalf of the families and said, those words can't change. Those are the system advisor words. They were instantly changed back. Mm -hmm. And so I think at every point, my sense was the spirit of co-design was across this work. Even when at times, because you had to deliver something quickly or (laughs) COVID, Mm -hmm. which hit us, and then we couldn't meet face to face. Mm -hmm. I just felt like we all worked really hard with the families and with DHS to keep that Mm -hmm. intention of Mm co-design. And, you know, you touch on, Mel, what are the kinds of things that are required from people across a system if you want to make something like this work, Mm -hmm. you know, and you've started talking about our our DHS colleagues and I do want to make a few other points which I think are important about this. And, Yasmin, you touched on this as well. You actually walk into something when you're thinking about co-design not knowing exactly what's going to happen. Mm. And actually you're holding that level of unknown Mm. for actually a long period of time. Mm. And that's exactly what happened. Mm. Or we'd go in one direction and have to go back again. And there was all sorts of things that that affected this. And so I think the things that that I really saw reflected in the way DHS staff people worked were a couple of things. First of all, we were always able to question power in the room, mm. always. And to be able to think about that, what does that mean? How, what does it really mean to give power to people in a room? So that mm. was something that was just kind of there and people knew it. I really appreciated that not only in, in developing the child and family support system work, that project, but also into this, is that we, we always had our DHS colleagues in the room. Mm. I think the only way to create systemic change is when the leadership is actually in the room mm. to do that. Yeah. And it's the best way. And I thought that that was also, um, you know, really, really powerful. I also think something that I know, and, and, and it's because I know a number of the staff quite well, which is, which is great over a number of years. I, I, there's a genuine care, concern, belief in families mm-hmm. and their voices. Mm-hmm. It's not just a kind of like, oh, we're just going to kind of believe in this. Mm-hmm. People do genuinely believe in it. And I think that's another really important principle in general in this work, but also in co-design, is that you really believe yeah. that you're an absolute believer mm-hmm. in the voices of family. So I think all of that, all of those elements made the project go well, but also um, allowed the system advisors to develop over mm-hmm. time and that network to develop over time as well. The other thing that was clear was the constraints, because co-design, you are, you're right, it's evolving we don't know where it's going but in most systems there are some constraints we have to work within there are some it might be politics it might be time frames it's budget it's all of these things and I felt there was realism about that as well and while at times we would have loved more budget or more time my sense was we as the external supports were never given a message via multiple people from higher up the chain no that can't happen go and tell them There was always that accountability for it, that leadership was prepared to come and meet with the families and tell them those constraints themselves if there was a new constraint came in that they Mm. hadn't expected. Mm. So that shifting grind, I guess, that Mm. is working in complex systems, I felt like they took real ownership of that. And we have to acknowledge having Yasmin as a member of staff, so committed to the families, and the fact that your position even exists mm. is, a, is a massive enabler of this. Yeah, totally, totally. You'll notice here that Mel mentioned the importance of the department creating a dedicated position to support the coordination of the lived experience network. 
This is similar to the Child and Family Partnership Coordinator positions we have at Emerging Minds that enable us to proactively include the voices of children and families with lived experience in our work. I was curious to hear from Yasmin about her experience of working in this role. What have been some of the internal processes that have supported her and what have been some of the challenges? It's been a really interesting role because I feel like I'm in this position uh, of liaison between the Mm. families and DHS and I have to make sure that I have a good understanding of both both sides and where people are coming from um, and, and it's about bringing the two together. And I think at times there was some confusion from the families about well, what is this lived experience network? I don't understand why we're here, what are we doing? But I think that was kind of a positive in the end because by the time we finished writing our terms of reference, I think there was a sense of ownership over Mm. that because they went through that journey of confusion and uncertainty and came out the other side feeling like, well, this was our work. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was some back and forward between DHS and the Lived Experience Network about adding things and changing things. And it was a negotiation and I think um, Mm -hmm. it was upfront and honest and, Mm -hmm. yeah, they they were Mm -hmm. at the table. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that it was a valuable experience Mm -hmm. and there, there is that sense of ownership of the group. Yasmin was highlighting some of the things that the group struggled with at times in those early stages. Things like knowing what their role was, knowing what they were doing, why they were all there, and understanding what the lived experience network's purpose was. All things that needed to be worked through while sitting with the uncertain feelings this brought up. But it sounded like really taking the time with this was an absolutely worthwhile process and led to the system advisors really having that sense of ownership of the group. At Emerging Minds, we recognise the importance of offering opportunities for our child and family partners to build their skills to equip them for the involvement that they have with our work. I was curious to hear from Dana, Mel and Yasmin's perspective what it takes to build a lived experience network in terms of the skill development required. You need to have people bring a certain way of thinking and being into this kind of work. Mm. I think the first thing is that you absolutely believe in people. Mm. I think if you believe in people, and I know the three of us, that's our values, that's how we work, then the wonder of people, Mm. it just comes. Mm. It just arises. Mm. And so whilst we would, you know, if we think about the kinds of things we went through, we talked about co-design, we went through Mm. step-by-step what the processes Mm. look like, etc we tried different things with people like there was just so many ways in which we tried to do things that would work with people to design in ways that felt right for them as well you know it's a shared learning about what does it take to ask a family to help to co-design some stuff when they've actually got their own family Mm. with children Mm. and with all sorts of things going on in their lives Mm. so it was kind of like you 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 find ways to learn about what this way of working can really look like in the real lives mm. of people. Mm. So I think, yeah, I think it was a sort of a, a shared approach, though of course we went through the kind of the steps that we knew were important about mm. skill development. Mm. But yeah, in the end, you leave better off really, mm. you know, in terms of your knowledge and your skills yourself. Mm. So in addition to the co-design skill development that we did, we've offered training to the system advisors 
range of different sort of certificates and, and courses that they've been able to participate in. And DHS were really clear from the outset that they wanted the system advisors to get something out of it so mm -hmm. that there was, you know, skill development and, and training um, in, the, in the process. But I think that formal training, while it's really valuable, um, there's so much growth that mm -hmm. has happened, um, I guess, organically over time and just creating opportunities for the families to talk with one another and have people come and consult with them and ask them questions and have discussion. It's allowed them to grow as people and develop confidence and skills that they always had, but that they've really been able to, um, to shine in mm -hmm. that space. And yeah, I definitely hear that from them, that they talk a lot about their self-confidence and their self-esteem and the impact that being involved has had. So mm. I think that's a wonderful outcome. And you, yeah, you talk about building the skills that they had, but they maybe mm. didn't know they had. Mm. I think that's a lovely way to put it because often we, we don't know mm. what skills we have because mm. we haven't had a chance to use them. And, yeah. you know, and I guess for some of these, particularly some of the younger members of the Lived Experience Network, it was their first experience really of being in a, a professional environment in that sort of, you know, influencing policy. Mm. And um, so it was... Like hats off to them. I just think what a baptism of fire um, to suddenly be thrust into this position where you're speaking to the executive director in a government mm. department. Mm. Um, and I just think they impacted. And as you said, they at every level in the system, people have learned from them. Mm. Um, and for them to see that impact, I just think is is really critical. And again, all that additional training they've got is mm. is so helpful. And I think you've done such a great job and the department has about addressing some of the barriers they might have faced and mm. um, so you always met I think here or mm. most times here which is a lovely community centre with a playroom and it's a safe environment it's not a government building helping with transport childcare, mm. and paying attention to that some of that social stuff giving them that opportunity to network and and I think what I loved watching, even when we were on Zoom, was that peer support mm -hmm, that they were sure. offering each other, yeah. you know, that they were connecting with each other between sessions mm. and building a real sense, you know, strength and mm. confidence together. Yeah. The skill development, training and other opportunities the system advisors have gained from their involvement with the Lived Experience Network, as well as the peer support and personal growth and confidence they have experienced have all been ways that DHS has been able to give back to the Lived Experience Network. After completing their term with the Lived Experience Network, the system advisors have had a range of resulting opportunities, including some system advisors now becoming child and family partners with Emerging Minds. Next, we hear from Dana, Mel and Yasmin about the important balance of providing safety and being trauma-informed in lived experience work, while also offering choice about the opportunities to be involved. But this is what I've learned, you know, with working with people with lived experience and, you know, I've done a lot of work with working with my own people, you know, mm -hmm. Aboriginal communities as well. I think sometimes what we can do is get to a point where you, you get to a point where caring for people, as in caring for people to not re-traumatise, can at times really disempower people, mm. right? Because you're making a judgment about what someone should be involved in mm. and what they shouldn't be involved in. Mm. And actually what I've learned across every bit of work that I do is that actually the most important thing and the most de-traumatising, whatever the right word is for it, way of doing this, is actually that you give people a choice. Mm. 
that you actually ask we would like to explore this for a little while how does people feel about that mm -hmm. or we might want to work in this site does that going to bring up anything for you or mm -hmm. you actually ask people their view on it to give them choice and that power mm -hmm. that sense of power is the thing that helps people mm -hmm. to be able to do this kind of work and to understand what it is that's right for them when we reached the end of the co-design process and we were looking for people to be part of the ongoing development and co-design. I remember we went back to families who probably we didn't think would do it, mm -hmm. but we asked them. Yes. You know, and you're right. It was that, um, you framed it really beautifully. It's about empowering them to have the choice over their own life and that mm -hmm. we're not making a judgment about whether they're ready or not, mm -hmm. whether they've dealt with issues enough to share their experience, but mm -hmm. to give people that you know dignity of choice mm. and and power to say mm. well yeah that is something I want to do and and as a result of that the diversity in the group was mm. was amazing and as we tried to expand the network that was mm. more intentional but that really bubbled up from the people who we met during mm -hmm. that process mm -hmm. and who said yes to that ongoing co-design mm -hmm. so not just cultural diversity but age groups perspectives mm -hmm. family size where they lived how mm -hmm. they lived that was something i think which was a real strength mm -hmm. and something that in co-design is so helpful to mm -hmm. and, and um, enriching and you also remind me that when choice is given and when people get to choose where they are in in, in something mm -hmm then they have the sense that they can tell you when something isn't right yeah, or if they don't yeah. like it. Yeah. So I reckon we were, I mean, people were very respectful about it, but we had moments where we were pulled up about oh, the way we'd said something mm -hmm. or the process that we were going to apply and they just said we don't like that or yeah, this needs to change <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. And and that that's actually what you want mm -hmm. to keep people safe yeah. in, in a lived way, you know. Being guided by the families is so important. But, yeah, I guess from an organisational perspective, um, DHS has had to figure out how we could support this group and make it actually happen and you know things like employing creche staff you know people to actually care for the children whilst we were um, meeting that was a real challenge and it took a lot of navigating the system to try and work out a solution uh, unfortunately we couldn't employ people we didn't have the right award to employ people ourselves so we had to partner with another agency to provide that service and so that that took a while to establish but I think it was so important that we continued that path that we didn't just shut it down and say actually providing creche is too hard yeah. so yeah it, that was really important for me to just continue to push that until we found a solution mm. and yeah you know recently the family said to me that they wanted to meet more in the north because mm. you know they were traveling quite a long way to come to the western region to our meetings so and a lot of that was just about room availability but you know I just had to try that bit harder and keep exploring until we found a venue in the yeah. north that we could use yeah. so yeah I, I think responding to the family's needs is really important mm -hmm. um, and yeah I think touching on that issue of trauma and keeping people safe you know I think whilst that's really important and we highly value looking after the group it is about empowering them to mm -hmm. make that choice themselves mm -hmm. and so I try to be as inclusive as possible with the group and let people know be really transparent that this is the topic that we're going to be discussing on this day and how do you feel about that and who wants to participate and you know some people will opt out and and others will you know be quieter in the group on that session and and that's okay so mm -hmm. yeah definitely giving that choice to them is mm -hmm. is important mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Yasmin, Dana and Mel have reflected on the importance of being responsive to the family's needs at the same time as being transparent and giving families choice about their involvement. It's clear to hear that this approach to creating the safety that's required for the group has been really key to its success. In part one of this podcast, we have heard about the importance of centering families' voices in a co-design project of this nature, how Dana, Mel and Yasmin were able to build trusting relationships that really considered power and demonstrated a belief in the families and the systemic change that they would affect. Stay tuned for part two, where Dana, Mel and Yasmin will discuss how the Lift Experience Network were able to embed the group's existence and functions within the system that they had been invited to inform, as well as hearing some of the ways that really ensured that Lift Experience voices would be elevated. You can learn more about working with Lift Experience Family Partners in Emerging Minds Child and Family Partnerships Toolkit. Thank you for joining us. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds, the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.